Father, as we consider your glorious plan for the salvation of your elect, that was agreed to by the Trinity before time began, executed in history according to the perfect ordination of your timing of all events and all necessary conditions to come into line to accomplish our salvation, we stand in awe of you. When we consider Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, forever glorified as the second person of the Godhead in glory, taking on human flesh, stooping low, entering our experience to take on the burden of our sin, to be crucified on Calvary, we stand in awe of you. As we consider the tomb of Jesus Christ found empty just three days later because he himself, along with the other members of the Trinity, raised him from the dead because that which was intrinsic to his nature could not be kept in the grave, we stand in awe of you. As we behold you ascended, Lord, ascending even in Acts when the early church freshly imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, stare into the heavenlies, and the angels give the marching orders, saying, Because the Holy Spirit has come and will come, because Christ has ascended, therefore all authority is given unto Him, even echoing the truths of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. And therefore, go, we stand in awe of you. As we consider ourselves saved, Lord, out of the darkness of the world and unbelief, out of the death of sin, some 2,000 years later, after you ascended and your church continues, to add to her numbers daily, as many as you see fit to draw by the irresistible power of your Holy Spirit, we stand in awe of you. Lord, this morning we consider the great privilege of gathering as your saints, though there could be a thousand things that would keep us from the assembly of the beloved. Nevertheless, you've brought us here today by your mercy and your power, and so we stand in awe of you. And now as we open your scriptures, which are marvelously, marvelously and uh, gloriously and infallibly recorded, and preserved for us, in which is revealed Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the plan of our Heavenly Father for salvation, and the promise of the Holy Spirit applying it to our souls, we stand in awe of you. Lord, as we open the Scriptures, I pray that you would encourage and equip your church, that you would draw the lost to salvation, that you would reinforce the foundation and the grounding of our soul's hope in Christ alone. And all of this, that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us not forget this morning what a glorious privilege it is to gather in the name of Jesus Christ, to see Him, to exalt Him, lifted up upon His throne, and also to consider His holy word. I'd encourage you to turn with me this morning to Genesis 19. In our Genesis series, we continue with the record of Abraham and Lot and God's visitation of two places and two different scenarios that follow. The one is the covenant meal and blessing of Abraham. The other is the judgment and destruction of the cities of the plains, the Jordan Valley region, and particularly Sodom and Gomorrah. This is truly a weighty and significant text. There's a lot packed in here. We have a lot to cover this morning in Genesis 19, 1-25. So I pray that God would give us the ability to see the truth that He proclaims through this account. The title of this morning's message is Angels versus Sodom. So the angels, there's two of them that visit Sodom, and they're there to give a judicial reckoning on the state of that city, that area, that society, that land, that region. They're there to give a judicial reckoning on where it stands with respect to God's law. 
And then, of course, on the other side of this is Sodom itself, where indeed does this nation stack up, this city, society, if you will, stack up against God's revealed truth. We see that there's quite a conflict there, and it doesn't end well for the unbelievers. However, God's mercy is all the while seen in rescuing Lot from this situation. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to magnify the mercy of God, considering sin and its wages, and also considering our salvation from it. To magnify the mercy of God, considering sin and its wages, and our salvation from it. Would you stand as you're able, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, and consider in your hearing the record of Scripture in Genesis 19, verses 1 through 25, as we hear the Lord proclaim the truth of this historical event in our ears today. Verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get up out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But, they seemed to his, but he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, and they, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to it. It is a little one. 
Let me escape there. It is not a little one. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a graphic, what a dramatic, what a horrific picture of these events we have just read. The record of the trial of Sodom and the entire valley region in which that city was situated included the city of Gomorrah and the areas beyond as well. We can draw from inference in our text. This region and what happened to it, the count continues into chapter 19, our passage today, 1 through 25. What, what do we have? Well, we have introduced to this region two eyewitnesses which are sent from the Lord himself. Do you remember the law? By the testimony of two or three legitimate first-hand eyewitnesses, a charge can be, will be established. So along the lines of God's standards of jurisprudence, he sends two eyewitnesses, messengers from heaven, as it were, these angels, to go and to witness, to see, to investigate judicially the situation of Sodom, and then to report back, as it were. These two angels arrive at Sodom in the context, therefore, of judicial reckoning. It's sort of a lawsuit, a covenant lawsuit with attorneys or with witnesses sent to review the reports that have been received, if you will. By the testimony of these two messengers, these two angels, the case against Sodom will be established. The outcry against the city is confirmed almost immediately when these angelic beings are confronted with unimaginable wickedness that very evening. You know, directly in our text, in between the lines, the horrific level of sin that we have witnessed in our text is shocking indeed. There really only appears to be one righteous man in the city, if we read this text on the face of it. And though he welcomes these ambassadors, of course, that man would be Lot, though he welcomes these ambassadors from the realms of glory with reverent hospitality in the first few verses, nevertheless, we soon discover the toll that Sodom's evil has wrought on his own soul. <clears throat> he has not been unaffected by the wickedness around him. And this toll is extended beyond him to his family as well. Nevertheless, Lot and his household are delivered by the grace and mercy of God. Meanwhile, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the entire region are destroyed. Turn with me as you're able to uh, 1 Corinthians 3. <clears throat> This incident serves as what I call an event oracle. It's an event that happens in history that carries meaning on into the future. Thus, this, is, this incident is referenced a number of times through the Scripture to communicate to us, to illustrate in real time, the way the Lord will ultimately deal with sin, the nature of His judgments, His wrath, as well as His mercy. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 identifies a similar situation that all people will be subjected to. And we see how it corresponds to these events as we read the context, 1 Corinthians 3.10. Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Let's pause there. 
you could extend the application of this, let's say to Lot's situation, take care where you set up camp. Do you guys remember when Abraham and Lot parted ways? Abraham chose to remain in the place of covenant promise. Lot chose to set up camp to build the foundation of his dwelling, as it were, closer, and now we find him actually with the, indeed within the city limits of a very prosperous place, physically speaking, that had a lot of rich yield and crops and so forth. But spiritually speaking, it was rotten to the core. Take care where you build your foundation. <clears throat> Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, Paul goes on. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, see two categories there, each one's work will become manifest. And listen to this, verse 13, for the day will disclose it. Day is in capital letters. What is the day of the Lord? That is the visitation of the Lord and his judicial reckoning. That's where the balances are set aright. That's where there is a lawsuit or a court appearance that is mandated for everyone. And this day came for Sodom and Gomorrah in the moments that we've read of, but there will come another day, a final day of judgment, which will disclose what is precious jewels and what is wood, hay, and straw. And Paul says, because it will be revealed, verse 13, by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. The fire was rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And it sure was a test, and not much survived, did it? Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That last verse there, 1 Corinthians 3.15, well describes Lot. If anyone's work is burnt up, the legacy of Lot in Sodom was incinerated in flame, flaming hot magma, uh, perhaps, from a, something like a volcanic eruption. It buried and burned this entire civilization. So all that he had invested, materially speaking, in that area, in that region, was destroyed overnight. It says he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Again, we see Lot pictured in this text, but only as through fire. So 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 speaks of a day which will disclose each one's work. That would be, that work would be the fruit of their faith. What is the fruit of our faith? Are we, can we identify more with Lot than with Abraham? If so, repentance is in order. And part of the purpose of Genesis 19 is to make the taste of Sodom, that is the taste of the world, grow sour in our mouths. So we move our tents, not to camp so close to a wicked culture, but to put distance between ourselves and the spirit of the age and to move back, as it were, and pitch our tents in the place of covenant promise. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. This account of Lot's narrow escape from a city doomed to fiery destruction prefigures the testing trials and final judgment of God to come. Second Peter will tell us that as well. Lot was one whose legacy in Sodom was incinerated, though he himself was saved, as we've read, as though through fire. This account, Genesis 19, therefore, ought to inspire a reverential gratitude, worship of the Lord, and thankfulness. It is the glory of the Lord revealed against the backdrop of wickedness, of the wickedness of men in devastating destruction, even as His mercy is extended to rescue His weak and wayward son. The devastating judgments of God were rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, but at the same time we do see His mercy extended to rescue His weak and wayward son. 
Today, let us consider in context of Genesis 19 what we can learn from this day of visitation, the day of the Lord. Under this heading, the day of the Lord in Sodom revealed the following. Number one, Lot's conflicted soul, verses 1 through 3 and following. Number two, the day of the Lord in Sodom revealed Sodom's depravity, or just you could say Sodom's sin, the sinfulness of the city, of the society. Number three, the day of the Lord in Sodom revealed God's mercy, the mercy of God. And number four this morning, the day of the Lord in Sodom revealed the wrath of God. Lost conflicted soul, Sodom's depravity, the mercy of God, and the wrath of God. First of all, Lot's conflicted soul. Turn to 2 Peter, if you would, 2.8, and we'll get a, just a word of commentary by the inspired apostle on the person, the character of Lot. Who is Lot, and what is his significance? What can we learn of him as we study him? Well, 2 Peter lets us in behind the scenes of the soul a little bit to understand something of Lot's character. Verse 8, For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, back up to 7, speaking of the Lord, and if he rescued Lot, righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So you see what Peter has done here in referencing the story we're reading today from Genesis 19. He's recognizing that Lot was a man tortured in his soul, conflicted in his soul, a righteous man from one perspective, yet torn and troubled because of the area in which he had set up his homestead. It says, furthermore, that the Lord knows how uh, to rescue someone from these situation, this situation, even as he rescued righteous Lot. To rescue him from what? The distress of being surrounded by sensual conduct of the wicked. That would mean sin motivated by base fleshly desires that causes a society to careen into such levels of depravity that it's absolutely wicked and self-destructive in the nth degree. So 2 Peter 2.8 identifies Lot as a righteous man, yet conflicted of soul. Lot's soul was tormented by the evil of Sodom. And the visitation of the angels revealed this kind of double-mindedness or this conflict, this trouble in his soul. And it causes him to his eyes to be opened and in the end him to be rescued, although as by fire, as we've read 1 Corinthians 13. And secondly, this first portion of Genesis 19 parallels the fellowship meal of Abraham in chapter 18. So what do we see here? We see the difference between a man conflicted of soul, welcoming the messengers of the Lord, and a man standing on covenant promises, namely Abraham, welcoming the messengers, the word of the Lord. And so this is an interesting juxtaposition. So let's look more closely at 19.1 and 18.1. 19.1 says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. So that was Lot, Abraham's nephew. Now turn back a page to Genesis 18.1 and notice the parallels and differences. And the Lord appeared to him, this would be to Abraham, by the, uh, where was kids, where was Abraham living at this time? Um, Oaks of Mamre is correct. Lot was in Sodom, and Abraham was in the was had his pitched his tents by the Oaks of Mamre. The Lord appeared to him, 
Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat by the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes, verse 2, and looked, and behold, there were men standing in front of him. He saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth. And then he uh, encourages them, he welcomes them into his home. First of all, Lot's conflicted soul. This is evident in the location of these two events. So there, there's a lot of similarities. They're both standing at the door of their dwelling. But Abraham is standing at the door of a temporary dwelling. Why? Because Abraham, according to Hebrews, was looking forward to a city whose builder and maker was God. Abraham, when he was walking by faith, he looked forward to a city whose assurance and safety and provision and security and residence was to be constructed according to the Lord's time, the Lord's purposes, His Messiah, and His word and law. Meanwhile, Sodom, or meanwhile, Lot was a fearful man. He struggled with insecurities. He, and he ran towards a city that he could see, touch, taste, feel, that he could interact with real people, real walls, a real civilization, so to speak. And so one is standing at the door of a tent, a temporary structure and faith of the city of God. The other is standing at the door of a house now within Sodom itself. We have noticed this trajectory of Lot and the appeal of Sodom. Notice in chapter 13, verse 12. This is when Abraham and Lot separate ways. They part ways. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So you see here the trajectory where Lot's going. He's going towards Sodom, cities of the valleys, moving his tent as far as Sodom. Next chapter, verse 12. We've talked about this before, but just to refresh your memory. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So he was on the outskirts of Sodom. Now he's in Sodom. And then 19.1, we find him even more ensconced in the city. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gates of Sodom. Gates are position of prominence and significance. Uh, why would... Uh, Lot have a place of prominence and significance in Sodom, do you suppose? Well, commentators remind us of two reasons. Number one, Lot was a very wealthy individual. Wealth will get you a long way in influence in a pagan society sometimes, right? So if you control a lot of wealth, a lot of flocks, a lot of herds and crops at your disposal, then that might earn you favor, at least temporally speaking, within the city. But secondly, in chapter 14, Abraham had defeated the enemies of the city of the plains. Remember the keter Lamer coalition? They had taken Lot captive. They had abducted him and his family. They kidnapped him, and they defeated the region. Abraham gets about a couple hundred guys together and goes and chases them down, defeats four armies, sets the men free, liberates Sodom, and then the king of Sodom wants to pay Abraham tribute and join in that fellowship meal by paying tithes, so to speak, to Abraham while Melchizedek met them in the Valley of the Kings. Abraham refused the fellowship of the king of Sodom. Nevertheless, Abraham was responsible for liberating the region. So it stands to reason that a relative of Abraham, his nephew Lot, would, re would have the a privileged place in that society if he wanted it. it. Looks like he did. And so the angels find him in the gate of the city. So again, location is significant. Abraham sets his camp sets up camp at the place of altar promise, and Lot has drifted more and more toward the city of Sodom and more and more involved in the goings-on, presumably, in that society. So as we see this a juxtaposition, it reminds us that it takes a man of faith 
to be a sojourner, a wanderer, to recognize that he is in between places of security. Abraham left an established city to travel to the city of God. And in between, he didn't have a place to call his home per se, but he had faith that God's promises were more secure and assured than what Lot, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, what Lot was tempted by, could promise. Who proved to be the fool in the end? And who proved to be the one who had the right idea? Well, it took some time. But Abraham defeated the enemies, even though he was just a traveler, a sojourner, a tent dweller. He defeated the enemies of Sodom. He proved himself more powerful than the enemies of Sodom. So what should that tell you? Meanwhile, Sodom and Gomorrah end up being destroyed utterly by the wrath of God. And the breath of fire, so to speak, of his judgments rained down from heaven. Yet Abraham remains secure in his tents. And while Lot is left scrambling and running away and begging for the next secure location and uh, showing his distress along the way. This is evidence of Lot's uh, conflicted soul. Now, lest we say too much negative about Lot, there is something quite positive in 19.1. Notice that he recognizes these men as important and then he draws them, he welcomes them into his home. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with face to earth, to the earth and said, My lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Doesn't that sound just like what Abraham did? He looked up, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, the men were standing in front of him. This is 18.2. When he saw them, he ran from his tent door to meet them, bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass from your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. Guys, did Abraham just bring a little bit of food, kids, or did he bring a big meal? He brought a big meal, right? At first he said he was going to bring a morsel, but he actually made a bunch of bread, cakes, and so forth, and Sarah got busy as well, and they ended up using five gallons of flour for this big feast. So both Abraham and Lot welcome the messengers of the Lord. This shows Lot's recognition and honor in his greeting and hospitality. He also knows, Lot does, that there is evil lurking on the premises. So, and we see in this telling language, he earnestly refuses to allow these men to spend the night in the town square. Why? Because Lot is aware. His soul is tortured. He is troubled every day because he knows that though the conveniences and security of the city is tempting, it's come at great price. He is surrounded by horrific sin. And he knows if these men stay out in the town square, they'll be exploited, abused, they'll be raped, they will be attacked by these gangs of lawless, hedonistic, absolute reprobates. And that becomes clear in the rest of the text. So Lot shows this recognition and honor and a desire to protect those who have come and he sees that they are significant men. Even though he himself is a man of some importance, he bows low and defers to them. He recognizes that he is in the presence of important individuals, and he shows them the hospitality that is due their office. So Lot's soul is conflicted. Even though he has set up camp in Sodom, nevertheless, he recognizes that these men need to be welcomed, and he better listen to what they say. And then he continues in making them a meal. Uh, Abraham offered a three-sia, five-gallon flour feast. But Lot offers unleavened bread. Perhaps this foreshadows an exodus. 
Do you guys remember the kind of bread that the Israelites ate right before they had to run away out of Egypt? They ate unleavened bread because presumably it was thinner and compact and you could make it more quickly. So there's a kind of attitude or an air of urgency in even the nature of the feast. And it's sort of foreshadowing, if you will, an exodus that's about to come. So we see some parallels here as well. So he draws them into his house, welcomes them into his house. He urges them strongly not to spend the night in the town square. And he makes for for them a feast and bakes this unleavened bread and they eat. Now, we've mentioned the significance of covenant meal before. And it is something to see Lot here recognizing that this fellowship with these godly men is worthy of a covenant meal or the table of fellowship with them. Just as Abraham was visited by God himself and these two messengers and immediately a covenant meal or the table was spread before them. We've compared this to the covenant meal that God has privileged us to share here. Here's an application for you. Recognize when you are surrounded by enemies one of the most profoundly religious and important aspects of Christian worship is to share in covenant, in relationship, in what the meal, the Lord's table, represents with the Lord. I say this because there are forces at work, even in our society today, a certain wickedness that makes appeal to fear around us that would say, you know, the table of the Lord is optional. Churches shouldn't gather. Maybe you could get sick extend it out one more way even right now you know thanksgiving which i consider is a godly holiday it's a holiday who in its original conception was purposed to feast and to declare that the lord himself is responsible for granting us the ability to endure one long winter or the prosperity that this nation has come to enjoy and if you have this religious conviction about the importance of a time set aside for feasting to acknowledge the grace and mercy on the Lord, you should not let the wickedness of your culture dissuade you from participating in that fellowship meal. It is my conviction anyway that this applies. Guarding the table of the Lord or guarding the attitude that when consider table fellowship with the Lord and with his people, the covenant bonds and what is symbolized in a uh, worshiping a God-honoring meal is so important that we need to guard it. Now, Lot had plenty of failures in his life, but one thing he did not let the wicked culture do is prevent him from sharing in a covenant meal with God's anointed ones. Neither should we. We should not let a wicked culture prevent us from sharing in the covenant meal with his anointed ones. That's how important it is. The table of the Lord, communion table, is not optional. And we need to guard it and defend it. We need to at least have the conviction of Lot. At least have the conviction of Lot. Church in America, listen. We need to at least have the conviction of a righteous, tortured man and not let the wicked culture dissuade us from covenant meal with the Almighty. It should break our heart that we're allowing the presuppositions of the culture who stands in fear and lack of faith and all kinds of wickedness to consider table fellowship with the Lord optional. Let's move to point number two. The day of the Lord in Sodom revealed Lot's conflicted soul, but it also revealed Sodom's great depravity. Verse four, what happens? Before they lay down, so before nightfall, when you normally go to sleep, trouble brews, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, and all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them without getting too specific. In the Hebrew, that word know, and especially in context here, refers to intimate relations. 
And we know from this that what is illustrated in the depravity, the sinfulness of Sodom, is a malignant sin. Malignancy, referring to cancerous and uh, fatal. The, sin, the seeds of wickedness and sin had taken such thorough root in this society that the fruit of that wickedness was beginning to demonstrate itself in the most gross and corrupt of ways. The scale of corruption is illustrated in these short phrases in a number of ways. First of all, men who are young to the old, every last one. The scope and scale of the wickedness, the malignancy of the cancerous sin in this culture had spread from the young to the old. You didn't have like teenage rebels and then wise elders. You had everybody corrupt without, without distinction and without, uh, with, uh, from every, everyone from the children to the old, this wickedness ha had co come in. So you can take from this a judge, a litmus test for the moral health of a society. Once the children are, begin to be instructed in depraved wickedness and evil ways, once the children begin to be inculcated and indoctrinated in these different avenues and outlets to erase the terms of the created order, that one can basically, that uh, gender is an optional social preference, that a man and a woman and a God-ordained order within the home is unnecessary, that love can be defined any way two consenting people prefer, that uh, all of the you know, traditional mores and, line, or, and uh, standards that used to govern the uh, ideas of marriage, faithfulness, home, and so forth, once these lines begin to be erased and they are actually taught and encouraged in the children, we're getting closer and closer to a Sodom and Gomorrah type situation. A healthier society may be sinful, but it might keep that sin, quote, in the closet. Now, every society since the fall has in the closet sin, but an especially depraved society encourages the sin to, quote, come out of the closet and parade it uh, with pride in the streets. I hope you're gathering from my commentary here parallels to the wickedness of America. Once sins that erase God's distinctions in the created order, the formation of the home and the family and the way that he has designed sexuality to be bounded by covenant, once those lines begin to be erased and paraded and celebrated in the streets, we are getting much closer to the judgment-deserving scenario that troubled Sodom and Gomorrah at this time. So let us rise up and recognize as much. And let not the church move close to minimize and justify and to ignore and to paste over the wickedness, but instead let us set up camp in the oaks of Mamre, away, as it were, spiritually speaking, from this kind of horrific redefinition of created order terms, call it out. And in this way, we can stand faithfully. We might feel like a sojourner. We might lose our home. We might have to live in a tent, as it were. That is to say, we won't be welcomed into as many areas and privileges of the society if we maintain that kind of faithfulness. But alliances with Sodom and Gomorrah are tenuous and tend to corruption and can destroy your whole family and can leave you on the doorstep of your own home negotiating the virginity of your daughters with a whole crowd of gang rapists. That's how intense the situation had deteriorated, or the situation was in Lot's day. 
we see the malignancy of sin illustrated in these kinds of ways. This, by the way, is the polar opposite of redemptive love. You know, we see this lasciviousness, this selfishness, this malignant cancerous sin, this absolute living by your base and uh, uh, animalistic desires, if you will. Well, the opposite of that is laying down one's life to save another. You know, these angels came at risk of their person, you know, in a sense, to rescue Lot. They entered into Sodom, were uncorrupted by it, but they had a rescue mission. Who will we be counted with? The rescue mission that goes in as angels and ambassadors that preaches God's word on the rescue mission to save, to preach salvation? Who will we be counted with? Abraham, who interceded and said, Lord, as we pray for the lost, if there be but ten righteous men in the city, would you spare it? We plead for the righteous. We don't entertain the values of Sodom, but we stand on its premises and plead with our righteous and a sovereign God that if he would extend mercy to save the righteous within it, or to extend his gospel over it, that they might repent and believe. That's where we should set up camp. We see Sodom's depravity and this malignancy of sin. We also see the corruption of Lot himself and his own compromise, where these shuddering words appear in verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. You got a mob beating down the door of the house with violence and uh, sexual perversion on their minds, demanding that they have their way with his visitors. And Lot steps outside an act of probably crazy, insane courage or whatever it was, closes the door behind him, and then we get this negotiation ensuing with crazy compromise. Verse 8, Behold, Lot says, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them to you and do, not, do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. One shudders to hear such a thing. How in the world could Lot be counted a righteous man if he's willing to trade his daughters for the safety of these visitors? It's just hard for us to get our mind around, is it not? Every self-respecting father should want to, uh, you know, a punch lot in the face for entering into this kind of negotiation. It's easy to judge from our, it's easy to be self-righteous in this regard. Before we judge lot too harshly, listen to a principle we can draw from this exchange. Failing to discern the wickedness of your society always leads to surrendering your children to the culture. Failing to discern the wickedness of the society always leads to surrendering your children to the culture. Or I, I should say there can be exceptions. But there's an axiom. If you fail to realize how wicked the society around you is, and you don't guard your home and set up the parameters and the boundaries of your home to thoroughly in, uh, in, enforce and equip your children to stand, then what happens is the pressure becomes so great that children, our children, become the first casualty and often are surrendered to a culture of wickedness. That's very dramatically illustrated here. But on a heart level, how often is that illustrated in our land, in America today? We may wax eloquent and principled as we complain about the trajectory of things. But are we opening up the scriptures every single day in our home, in family worship, to guard our children's hearts against the malignant mob of sinful men beating down the door on the outside, so to speak, of the intense pressure of Sodom-like behavior 
that's sweeping up the cultural forms in our day and the expressions of art and entertainment and the academy and sciences and the disciplines and pursuits and everything that make up the goals and directions and the focus of our land. We are called to discern the wickedness and to set up our home by the oaks of Mamre as it, as it were and to sufficiently arm our families, fathers especially, listen, against the wickedness of our era. And if we don't do so, the cost will be the pressure increasing, and God forbid we could lose our own children to the wickedness of this era. Finally, there is a despising of righteousness that is evident in the society's response. Verse 9, they said, stand back. They said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So what made the mob more angry? The fact that Lot would not surrender to them, the men that they wished to violate? Or the fact that Lot, in insinuating what they did was wrong, was judging them? Number two, who are you to judge? The unreasoning, rabid, rapacious, sexually perverse, violent mob is screaming in the face of Lot, Who are you to judge? Have you ever heard that attitude echoed in our culture today? Now, judgment is inescapable. It simply means distinguishing right from wrong. And if you have a whole culture that is embracing evil and wrong, if you even just stand for righteousness, the presence of your conviction is enough to cause the wicked one to cry out, Who are you to judge? I'm offended at your presence. And an increasingly wicked culture won't rest until they've eliminated the principled individuals from their society by suppressing their voice, by banishing them from polite society, quote-unquote, by marginalizing their ability to stand in righteousness, by changing the laws to deem them illegal, and even in worse cases, by bringing persecution and even martyrdom upon them. Why? Because the presence of godliness in a wicked culture stands as an indictment, just like these angels did. The day of the Lord had arrived, and it made the wicked culture realize that they were guilty of horrific sin. And instead of repenting, they reacted in anger and said, Who are you to judge? So let us be prepared to stand in a wicked day and to resist the pressures of a world that would condemn us for our righteous stand by saying, You arrogant, you think you're better than me? And we all know the answers I trust to these kinds of objections, do we not? The answer to, are you better than me, is no. I am also a sinner saved by grace. However, Jesus Christ is perfect, better than the both of us. God will not allow any sin in his presence. And the only way to be welcomed at his covenant meal table is to trust the blood of the Messiah to pay for your sins. And then if and when you do, you can be free from the judgment and wrath the, uh, that your sin deserves. And instead of looking forward to a day when fire and brimstone will rain down upon your head, you can join me at table fellowship with the Almighty. You can recognize the visitation of the Lord. And when His word comes in the form of those who take a stand for godliness, like Lot, even though, however, compromised at His door, or more precisely, the angels who proclaim the day of the Lord as they come in their judicial investigation, when that day comes, 
or we can stand along with those voices by proclaiming to a wicked culture that the only way to escape the wrath to come is to trust in the blood of the sacrifice of Messiah and our account to render us clean and holy and able to step into his presence. Who are you to judge? No one. Jesus Christ is already judged. He is the judge. His word is the judge. And he has called me to proclaim his word and to stand on his word. So yes, in a secondary way, I am called to judge, but I don't do so by myself and by my own standard. I am simply extending the compassion of the gospel of the Lord and letting you know the consequences of unrepentant sin. And sometimes this happens in a society so thoroughly corrupt they will not stand for this message and they will seek to beat the door down. But number three comes to us and couldn't come sooner um, or couldn't be more welcome. The day of the Lord in Sodom also reveals the mercy of God. So far, this tragic, this uh, horrific set of circumstances is almost beyond imagination. I've made some parallels to our own society, but truth be told, the depravity in Sodom and Gomorrah had reached depths and lows that we have not, by God's grace, witnessed just yet in our land. The mercy of God nevertheless intervenes even in times as dark as these, and we see it in verse 10 and following. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So forcefully, these angels miraculously open the door, grab Lot, pull him inside, and slam the door. What's one small door against an entire mob beating it down? I mean, we can imagine maybe it was made out of some hand-carved planks at the time. You would think just a couple minutes of coordinated beating on the door and everyone is dead meat in that house. But they were protected. How so? Verse 11, And they, the angels, struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. The Lord has struck his enemies blind in this instance. This happened another time, I believe with the Amalekites or uh, some such enemy army where the Lord struck them all blind. Reminding us it, the power to see, the physical capacity of your, of your body is in the hands of the Lord. And you see at his pleasure. And in a moment, he can strike you blind by the power of his sovereign hand. And this, in his mercy, is what he did to spare Lot and his family from the door being beaten down and everybody ravaged and left for dead in the town square that night. Praise the Lord for his mercy. This was a divine intervention. It went further to illustrate the depths of depravity, though, didn't it? Even though these men were struck blind, did that persuade them to stop their evil ways? No, they were so wholly given over, now Romans 1 says, to the perversion of their most base desires, the most wicked intentions of their heart, that they continued all night long like zombies, like sin-crazed blind zombies, reaching for the door, trying to get in. Make no mistake, the kinds of sins that we see prevalent in these people will render you a blind, unreasoning zombie. And you might stand there like Lot and try to reason with the mob, but there are times when the mob and uh, rationale and so forth is gone because they're so wholly given over to the wickedness. This is a mark of a culture about to be judged. Nevertheless, God had mercy on Lot and his family and saved him by direct and divine intervention. And this miracle pulled him inside, slammed the door, and struck his enemies blind. The mercy of God continues, and by extension, it is offered to Lot's entire household. Household rescue is offered. Verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone in the city? Bring them out of this place, out of the place, for we are about to destroy the place, because the outcry against his people 
has become great before the Lord. So that outcry, of course, is the testimony of, witness, testimony of wickedness, now verified by two legitimate witnesses, these angels, which deem the town worthy and ripe for God's destruction. But there's a moment of mercy here. Is there anyone else in your extended household who we might save? Verse 14, so Lot went out. He said to his sons-in-law, so these are the dudes that were engaged to his daughters. They're about to marry his daughters. He says, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. What did his future sons-in-laws or his would-be son-in-laws respond? He seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. You crazy uh, old guy. You, that is hilarious. And no doubt they just turned over and fell back asleep or something of the sort. Nevertheless, the mercy of God is seen in extending to Lot's household the opportunity for rescue. Remember, Abraham had prayed. There'd be ten righteous men. God had committed. He would save the whole city. God's mercy is seen here. Even though there aren't ten righteous men, he's going to save what righteous men there are. And for all we know, only Lot and him quite compromised is the only righteous one, perhaps. But God's mercy will extend even beyond this one righteous man to his family to provide opportunity for escape. So we see the mercy of the Lord revealed in this day of the Lord. Now this mercy extends even further. It's mercy in spite of Lot's hesitancy. Verse 15, as morning dawned, the angel urged Lot, up, take your wife and your daughters and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Notice verse 16 though. But he lingered. What? He's just twiddling his thumbs? He's procrastinating? The events of the last night weren't sufficient to say, we got to hightail it out of here? This is an emergency? Even if, you, even if you had a hard time believing that fire was going to rain down from heaven? Isn't a mob of likely thousands of people struck blind and still groping for the door to violate and kill you and every member of your household enough to say, get me out of this place? But Law was hesitant. Likely he had so much invested there. He would probably never have a city life again where he was as important as he was in Sodom. He would have had to rebuild his whole house, physical house, right from the beginning, start all over again. He would have to go to a city where he was utterly unknown and a stranger, and they perhaps had no memory of his uncle that spared the whole region from their captors. He would likely not share in the high society and the decisions of the city have any importance. And so likely as Lot was thinking about all that he had to lose in Sodom, he hesitated. Matter of perspective is brought forth, is it not, in the text? What should we think about more? What we have to lose in this life or fear of the wrath to come? Which one will give us a more rational perspective when facing the imminent reality of the day of the Lord? Fear of the wrath to come and appreciation for His mercy. Those should be the driving motivators in the heart of a convicted believer. Lot was conflicted. He was hesitant. He lingered. But notice the mercy of God. So the men seized him and his wife and two daughters. I grab him again by the hand. Notice this phrase. The Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Have you ever experienced the Lord seizing you and bringing you out of a place of self-destruction? Of a place that would have been the end of you? I know I have. There's been times where I've been blinded by the wrong motives and have entertained a situation that was to my own detriment and was not pleasing to God for way too long. But the Lord in His mercy will not let His own, will not let His son, His daughter, be in that place too long. And He will grab you sometimes in His mercy and seize you. 
Now, it doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't feel easy. It doesn't feel good. It's disruptive. It changes your life. It causes you all kinds of questions to flood your mind. It causes you to lose sight of what you had placed a lot of hope in, perhaps. Nevertheless, it is God's mercy. It is his tough love, if you will, bringing you out of that state of procrastination, double-mindedness, and allowing you another day to witness his glory, to repent, to grow in your walk with him, to be sanctified, to be convicted of your sin. Praise the Lord for his merciful removal, seizing us by the arm and bringing us out of a place of horrific danger. And then lastly, the mercy of God is seen despite Lot's fear. He starts to negotiate with the Lord as they brought them out. One said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Then notice Lot starts to negotiate, motivated by what? Fear. Verse 18, Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. This is Zoar, which actually means little. Uh, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. It is, not a little, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Notice that Lot still has fear, and he can't imagine life lived without the comforting, the comforting, familiar surroundings of a city. Remember, the city of God versus the city of man. Abraham had grown content to live in a tent. Uh, Lot cannot imagine life outside a city. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, the mercy of God. And I will not overthrow the city in which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called the Little One, or Zoar in the Hebrew. So as we see this situation playing out, we see that God's mercy was extended to Lot in spite of his fear. Notice how this contrasts with Abraham. When Abraham was negotiating with God, what was he praying for? He was praying for the salvation of others. When Lot was negotiating with God, what was he praying for? He was praying that God would make him feel comfortable. Lot had a lot of growth to do spiritually. Do you see? Which is the better prayer? The covenant man, the one who remembers the Lord, stays more faithfully bound to him, will pray for, the, uh, for others. He will think outside of himself. He will be so moved by the grace of God sparing him that he will want to rescue others. The one who is consumed with themselves, who's insecure and seeking only comfort and the best possible assurance for their own sake right now, turns inward and negotiates with the Lord and makes all their prayers, if you will, about themselves. Nevertheless, the mercy of God spared Lot. Now we see in the ensuing chapter, at a, which we'll study at a later time, the fallout of this kind of thing. Nevertheless, even against the weakness of Lot, we see featured, displayed, and shining the mercies of God. The day of the Lord in Sodom revealed Lot's conflicted soul, revealed, revealed Sodom's great depravity, revealed the mercy of God, and finally, most briefly this morning, it revealed the wrath of God. Just three more verses, 23 through 25. The sun had arisen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The Lord rained from the Lord. Verse 25. And he, the Lord, overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city, cities and what grew on the ground. The day of the Lord in Sodom revealed the wrath of God. The, the righteousness of God extended in the due punishment for the unrepentant wicked. 
There was a pagan deity at the time. I learned this from some commentaries listening to this week named Shamash. Shamash was this idea in the Near East of a supreme deity god. He was like the sun god, the sun deity. And the idea was this. With the rising of the sun each morning, Shamash would uh, bring justice to the crimes committed that night or the wickedness, the injustice of that night. So it was this pagan notion that equated the rising of the sun and darkness with ideas of good and evil and hope for the future and justice. It was a, an investment in a con conceptual, philosophical, religious reality and a false deity that didn't exist. When we consider the background of the culture of the day, this language in verse 23 becomes significant. The sun had arisen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The uh, point is this. The wickedness of Sodom every night was crazy for who knows how long. And we see it witnessed to in this event right here. Yet the next day would come, the rising of the sun, and Shamash, this false god, would do nothing. So the people would be emboldened in their sin and they'd grow a little bit worse. They'd see if they could get away with a little bit more. Shamash rises with the sun, nothing. So their perverse notion of accountability to a higher power of God had actually lent to the depravity and perverseness of this entire society. Well, there would be a God who would rise, the God, the one true God. And now with the rising of the sun, we see Shamash versus Yahweh. And when Yahweh rises, when his day of reckoning comes, when he sends his two witnesses to see if the outcry against his broken law is sufficient, he will rise in judgment and he will prove that he is Lord and that he is God. If you had told those depraved, zombie, sin-crazed, violent creatures the night before, you better repent because there's a day of the Lord coming tomorrow, how many would have believed? Probably not many. If you speak to culture and you say, there's a day of reckoning coming, and you know how I know it's been proven in times past. The scriptures say, just like he didn't let Sodom and Gomorrah get away with it, he won't let you get away with it, no matter who you are, wherever you're born, whatever your society. There is a day of wrath coming. People could sh shout you down. Oh, he's a sojourner. Now he's to ju judge over us. Who are you to judge? You know what you sound like? You sound like a wild-eyed, self-proclaimed prophet with the sandwich board in the streets preaching the apocalypse. Well, there remains a day of reckoning to come, and only a fool will deny it. One of my favorite quotes, J.C. Ryle. Surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared to die. J.C. Ryle said that, a prescient quote. Surely there are none so mad as those who are content to live unprepared to die. Tomorrow, 50 years, 100 years, may not be the last day, the final judgment. But one thing was true of everyone who was cavorting in the square of Sodom that night and everyone who is cavorting in the square of our society today, each individual will die. Death is a day of reckoning. And only those who are mad, only those who are struck blind by the discipline of the Lord and still fail to repent, grope around in their sin-crazed zombie blindness, are the ones who deny that reality. The wise man counts his days, counts the cost, and realizes there's a sovereign God in a day to come and only he knows the future. And only a fool would convert into sin, realize, or thinking to himself, Shamash hasn't done anything about it yesterday. Shamash won't do anything about it tonight. I'm going to continue in my sin without realizing that their idol idolatry 
has created in them a self-justification for reprobate, depraved, sinful behavior. But there is a voice, two angels that came to Lot, two angels that came to Sodom and proclaimed otherwise. How will they be received? Well, there's two ways you could apply a message like this. How will we receive the word of the Lord? We have heard his word today, I trust. And I pray that we would receive it, repentance and faith, encouragement, to pitch our tents closer to the oaks of Mamre, the covenant promises of God. Yet how will the word of God proclaimed by us be received by a culture? They may shout at us, who are you to judge? For if you are in that position, nevertheless, also gain great confidence, because it is a virtuous calling to intercede on behalf of the ungodly as Abraham did. In so doing, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus our Lord, who laid down his life for us, scorned, rejected, beat up, and abused by sin sinners, no less, uh, no less uh, you know, irrational in their violent violation of him and their false accusation and sending him to the cruel cross of Calvary. But nevertheless, he did so. And then he paved the way for a whole wave, a whole wake of apostles who followed in his footsteps, who counted it joy to be suffered on account of his name. It's all a matter of perspective. When we realize that there is a day of the Lord, that salvation is in Christ alone, then there's less conflict in our own souls. And we recognize more readily the depravity of the Sodom-like conditions around us. And we, and we value all the more the mercy of God, who saved a wretch like you, who saved a wretch like me. And we recognize it is not a fool who points out that there is a day of reckoning coming, coming, whether it be in your own death sooner or later, and then eventually in the day of God's judgment on that final day. But it continues encouraged by these truths to proclaim that even if the culture shouts him down. May the Lord encourage us by his word to do just this and to learn and grow in our own lives. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of your scripture which encourages us to be faithful even when the days are dark. Lord, I pray that you would give us the privilege to be a beacon of light and to see, Lord, those here and listen to the word of the Lord and repent and believe. We pray that you would spare our nation by a righteous minority standing up and proclaiming the truth of the day of, of wrath to come and the day of escape and the way of escape in Jesus Christ, our sovereign, our Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray that you would greatly encourage us and that you would equip the church to proclaim these truths no matter what may come around the corner. And finally, Lord Jesus, as we've seen ourselves in Lot, we thank you for the mercy that's been extended to us. We know that we don't often have the strength of character even of an Abraham, and even he was weak and weary at times and fragile in his faith. Nevertheless, you've extended to us your mercy in spite of our weakness. Lord, let us not take that for granted, but let us embrace the fellowship of the Almighty through the means that you supply, the proclamation of your word, the fellowship of the saints, the assembly of the beloved, table fellowship at your communion table. Lord, let us truly love and look forward to all of these things that we might stand strong. And Lord, finally, if there's any, of, any loss within the hearing of this message, I pray that you would bring strong conviction upon them that they might escape the wrath to come turn and follow Jesus Christ, the significant son who came from the line of Abraham. We thank you, Lord, for his victory in history, his salvation secured by his own blood. May we trust in him all our days and proclaim him as the only way of hope for the lost until you return, until you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.